Welcome to Christ Community Downtown Campus. Uh, I don't work here, um, so for those of you visiting, uh, you only have to deal with me one time uh, and then you're free. Uh, no, I, I work for a partner organization called Made to Flourish. I was here a couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of opening God's Word with you then, and I'm delighted to get to do so again today, though albeit for this admittedly very bizarre story. Uh, the more I think about it, the more I'm absolutely convinced that Gabe chose his sabbatical timing explicitly to avoid this text. Uh, so Gabe, if you're listening at home, which I know you're not, uh, but thanks for this, uh, and let's grab coffee after you get back. I've got some words for you. Um, <laughs> and I, I always feel like it's appropriate for us to open our time reading God's word, or, uh, after reading God's word in prayer, uh, that he would help us, and maybe all the more so today. Uh, so would you join me as we do just that? God, we thank you for speaking. We thank you that you are a God who has revealed yourself to us. And you've done that through your word, which we've now read and which we now seek to understand. And so God, help us in our frailty and weakness. May you speak to us powerfully through it. And Father, may your spirit have its freedom to work in our hearts and lives. And now God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of each one of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but I, I love battle stories. Um, I was really excited just last weekend. My, one of my all-time favorite directors, Christopher Nolan, just released his latest film, Dunkirk, uh, which is an incredible batter, battle story, a true story, of 400,000 uh, 400, Allied troops stranded on a beach in France, surrounded by the German army with no way out. Uh, full disclosure, I've not seen it yet. I am dying to see it, but I have two kids at home. Uh, so that kind of thing just doesn't happen very much anymore. Um, but it got rave reviews and came out number one in the box office last weekend. We'll probably repeat that this weekend. I think there's a reason that we're drawn to these kind of epic battle stories, whether it's Dunkirk or back in my day, Saving Private Ryan, whether it's Star Wars or Game of Thrones, whether it's The Walking Dead or Ahab's battle against King Hadad here, um, there's something about these battle stories that reveals the truth about the main characters involved in them. We learn a lot about them when they're in these conflicts. We learn about who they are. We learn about what they're willing to fight for, sometimes what they're even willing to die for. And this battle story is no different. And so without further ado, let's dive into the text here. If you haven't done so already, go ahead and open your Bibles or turn in your phones to uh, 1 Kings chapter 20 and follow along with me as I start reading in verse 1. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him and horses and chariots, remember that. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. Now, Syria was Israel's neighbor to the north, and they were not exactly BFFs. Uh, they weren't on the greatest terms. There was a long conflict between the two, in fact, a conflict that still endures to this day. Now, in the scene here, Syria is seeking to increase its regional influence, and they rightly recognize the strategic role that Israel, Israel's trade routes played in the global marketplace. They know that if you control the trade routes, you control the world. 
And so they descended on the nation of Israel, surrounded the capital city of Samaria, and were ready to pounce. And just when you think they're going to launch their attack, the action in the text pauses for this really bizarre conversation between Ben-Hadad, the king of the Syrians, and the king of Israel, King Ahab. Uh, King Hadad does what uh, any uh, good, well-respected politician might do in a moment like this. He sends a tweet. And in verse 3, sorry, I had to. Uh, Verse 3, he says to King Ahab, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. Interested, he's not uh, really uh, concerned about the worst wives and children, only the best wives and children. And at this point in the story you should expect King Ahab to stand up like the Israelite leaders of old and defy this demand of King Ben-Hadad, right? You would hope that he would do his best King David impression when he stood up against Goliath and he might say something like, who is this Syrian that would defy the armies of the living God? But that's not at all what Ahab does here. Verse 4, and the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. Not exactly a character that we want to emulate here. Now, in King Ahab's defense, I, I, I don't think he was just being an idiot here. I think he had a plan in mind. I kind of think that Ahab believed that this was kind of an, an invitation from Ben-Hadad to join this great allegiance we heard described earlier. Israel would join among the other 32 kings with Syria as the leading force in this allegiance. And in return, Israel would contribute to the Syrian uh, treasury. They would pay taxes. They'd give access to trade routes. Apparently, they'd work out some kind of wife swap arrangement. I don't know all the details, but something like that appears to be going on here. But Ben-Hadad wasn't just extending an invitation to Ahab. Apparently, he was giving an ultimatum, which is made very clear in his follow-up message to King Ahab when he says, no, 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 I think you misunderstood. Um, I'm coming tomorrow. I'm bringing all my men. We're going to waltz into the city, open the front door of your house, and take off everything that gives you joy. And this... This is what gets Ahab riled up. He won't fight for God. He won't fight for God's people, but mess with his stuff, man. (laughs) And he'll take you to the mat. And that's exactly what starts to happen here. So Ahab sends a return message to Ben-Hadad and refuses to concede to his demands And after a little um, ancient Near Eastern trash-talking of sorts, and of course a hefty dose of liquid courage, the battle lines are drawn and the war is about to begin. But but at this moment now in the story, something utterly shocking happens. A prophet shows up. And it's not Elijah. And that's alarming in this story. Up until this point, Elijah has been the key player in God's redemptive drama. But if you remember just last week, Ahab had had a bit of an issue. He threw a bit of a hissy fit, right? He looks around and he says, God, I'm the only one. Is there no one else who is still serving you? 
And after God gently reminds him of the truth and sends him off with some tasks to do, all of a sudden we have a new prophet emerge on the scene. In fact, an unnamed prophet. We have no idea who this is. We have no idea where he came from. All we know is that he's not Elijah. And that in and of itself is alarming. Maybe this is exactly what Elijah needed. Maybe he needed to remember that God is still at work, that God has servants and prophets at his disposal whose name we don't even know. But that's not the most shocking thing that happens in this moment. It's not just that an unnamed prophet shows up. It's that he shows up with good news. And this is very unusual for King Ahab. I mean, up until this point, every time a prophet has shown up on the scene, it's been doom and gloom, right? Like, oh my gosh, here's this guy again. I mean, what's it going to be now, right? But not this time. This time the prophet comes with a promise of deliverance. Look down with me at verse 13. It says, And behold, the prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day. Ahab, I will fight with you and for you. You will win this war. Why? Verse 13 tells us, And you shall know that I am the Lord. Remember, battle stories reveal something about the main character. And that's exactly what's happening here. In fact, I think this is what this text is all about. It's God revealing himself, who he is, and what he fights for. Now, the the idea of God showing himself through battle is not anything new for God's people. In fact, the language here would have reminded the ancient Israelites of another time when God revealed himself through battle. When Moses confronted the Egyptian pharaoh and demanded that he release God's people from their captivity, Pharaoh responded in Exodus 5, chapter 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey? And as God then waged his war against the Egyptians and poured out his plagues on them over and over and over again throughout the Exodus story, he reminds them why he's doing it, that you might know that I am Yahweh, that I am the covenant God of Israel. It's almost the exact same wording that we find here in 1 Kings 20, verse 13. And in fact, he doesn't just say it here in verse 13. He repeats it again down in verse 28. Only this time, it's not the hard-hearted Pharaoh who needs to learn about who God is. No, this time, it's the hard-hearted Ahab. See, this battle story isn't really about Elijah at all. He's not even on the scene And it's not even really about Ahab. He's just as much a ninny as ever. Now here, this story is about God. God is revealing who he is. In fact, I think he's showing us three things about who he is. And the first thing that we see from this text about God is that he is the God who is sovereign. He is the God who is sovereign. Now, sovereign is one of those fancy theological terms. Don't get tripped up by it. It just means that God is the one who's in control, not Elijah, not Ben-Hadad, not Ahab. God is the one who's in control, and he has no limitations. 
And this becomes a main theme of the story as the battle unfolds. Uh, Once the battle lines are drawn and and the prophet gives the good news, God tells him exactly what he wants Ahab to do. In verse 14, he tells them to gather up 232 servants of the governors of the districts. Now, while that might sound like it's just a ragtag bunch of paper pushers or the whole lower level of Downton Abbey. That's not at all what he's talking about here. This is a trained military unit. This is a group of mercenaries who are ready to go at a moment's notice. And these 232 men were to lead the people into battle with 7,000 Israelites who would follow. Now do the math here. On the one side with King Ben-Hadad, you've got 32 kings together with their armies and their horses and their chariots. We're talking easily over 100,000 people here. And on the other side, in this corner, you've got 7,232 foot soldiers. The odds are not exactly in Israel's favor, right? And if that's not bad enough, God sends them out at noon, in broad daylight, the heat of the noonday sun. I mean, this is the worst possible tactical time to start a battle. It's almost as though God takes great delight in stacking the deck against himself. But God knows. He knows what he's doing here. He knows that for Ben-Hadad, it might be noon, but it's five o'clock somewhere. (laughs) And sure enough, Ben-Hadad and his buddies are plastered. And against all odds, the Israelites pull out a surprise victory. The first battles of Om are over almost as quickly as it begins. And Israel is the unquestioned victor. It's almost undramatic the way it's described in the text. Thanks, of course, to the sovereign care and control of Israel's God, Yahweh who is sovereign over all. The only problem is Ben-Hadad slips away. He escapes the hands of the Israelites, and God will not rest until the oppressor of his people is destroyed. The victory may be won, but the battle's not over yet. And so meanwhile, back in the Syrian Pentagon, Ben-Hadad gathers his troops around and they debrief what just happened, what, what possibly could have gone wrong. And here's what they say down in verse 23. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, this is Ben-Hadad, said to Ben-Hadad, their gods, their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain. And surely we shall be stronger than they. That whole God stuff, that, that might have worked up there in the hills, right? But fight them on, fight them on our own turf? <laughs> that stuff doesn't work down here. It seems to make some logical sense, right? I mean, it's worth a shot. What do they have to lose? And so after a few months pass, they rebuild their troops. They restructure their leadership. They, they lay off the natty light this time. <laughs> and they launch a new battle this time on their own turf. And once again, God sends his people in outnumbered and with a ridiculous battle plan. 
This time they stand face to face with the army of Ben-Hadad for seven days in a glorified staring contest until finally on the seventh day God sends the people in, once again grossly outnumbered, and they knock down a hundred thousand troops in a day. A miraculous victory for the people of God. See, the Syrians had grossly miscalculated God's power. They underestimated the scope of his sovereignty. And if we're honest, we've all been down that road ourselves, haven't we? We've often compartmentalized our lives into various areas of whether we think God actually cares about that stuff or not, whether his power and and his concern extends to those parts of our lives. I mean, of course God is active in the hills of the church or the mountains of morality, right? But what about, what about the valleys of my workplace? What about the valley of raising my kids or managing relationships? But what about the valleys of our hobbies or our studies or, or our financial security? Can God really be trusted? Can his presence and power really be trusted when we're closing the deal? or when we're leading the meeting, or or when we're having that hard conversation, or when we're trying to make that that difficult decision. But the message that God is sending here is clear. There is no domain that falls outside of the care and control of God. He is sovereign over the hills and the valleys. He's sovereign over the sacred and the secular. He's sovereign over your Bible reading and balancing your budget. And he longs for our allegiance wherever we might go, whether the church room or the classroom or the boardroom or the bedroom. Where are the places that you struggle to trust in the sovereign care and control of God? Where are those places in your world that you're holding back for your own tactical decision-making and not trusting that God can take care of it for you and with you? Our God is the God who's sovereign over all, and he calls for our allegiance in every sphere of our lives. But there's another lesson that we learn about God from this story that's even more striking. Not only do we see that God is sovereign, but we also learn here that God is incredibly merciful. He is a God who is merciful, especially to Ahab. If there's anyone in the story who doesn't deserve mercy, it's Ahab. I mean, do, do you remember what we've learned about this guy over the past few weeks? I mean, Ahab was described early on as the worst king of all of the Israelite kings, which is quite an accomplishment if you know his competition, right? I mean, this is a guy who murdered the prophets. He encouraged the pagan worship of gods who were, who were violent and evil. He condoned all manner of prostitution and, and sexual assault and child sacrifice. And even in this very story, Ahab was so quick to trade his covenantal allegiance with God for a partnership with Syria, right? It's as though Ahab will serve anyone except God. He's about as far away from God as you could possibly be. And yet in spite of how quickly Ahab has given up on God, 
God has not yet given up on Ahab. He's still pursuing him, speaking to him, rescuing him. And this might be the most incredible part of this story. See, the text tells us about two battles explicitly, but there is another battle here raging behind the scenes. Yes, God is fighting for Israel, but he's also fighting for Ahab. He still hasn't given up on Ahab's heart. And that is absolutely remarkable. You know, when we think about God sometimes, especially in the Old Testament, we might be tempted to think that he's just, he's just some kind of capricious God with an anger problem, right? But that's certainly not the picture that we get here, at least not yet. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a few minutes. But here, we see God being abundantly merciful to Ahab. One commentator I read put it this way, He said, the impression we get from 1st and 2nd Kings is not that God is a stingy disciplinarian with an anger problem. If anything, the God of 1st and 2nd Kings is irresponsibly indulgent toward his people. By the time Judah is sent into Babylonian exile in 2nd Kings 25, we're not saying, my, what a harsh God. No, if we read attentively, we're saying, it's about time. (laughs) What took so long? The offense of the theology proper of 1st and 2nd Kings is not that God is angry with the innocent. The offense is the offense of God's mercy. The offense of Yahweh's unearthly patience with the irascible and unresponsive. Isn't that beautiful? Throughout the story, God shows himself to be recklessly extravagantly, irresponsibly merciful toward Ahab. And while Ahab constantly fights against God, God is constantly fighting for Ahab. What we learn about God here is that you can never exhaust his mercy. You can never exhaust it. And thank God for that, right? Because we all have a little Ahab in us. We, We all resist God. We all run from him. We all live and act in ways that are against our own good. And while we hide in our shame and our brokenness, our our hard-heartedness, thinking that God can't possibly accept us or forgive us or, or pursue us. And yet if God is still pursuing Ahab, rest assured he is still pursuing us Because our God is a God of reckless, scandalous, inexhaustible mercy. Oh, how I wish that this was the end of the story. I wish that Ahab would acknowledge the relentless mercy of God, repented of his rebellion, and run back to his true covenant partner. But he doesn't. Even after two miraculous military victories, Ahab is still just looking out for Ahab. After the Israelites smeared the Syrians for the second time, King Ben-Hadad was trapped in the city. He had no way out. 
It's kind of like the first version of Dunkirk. And so they came up with a plan. Verse 31. And his servants said to him, that's Ben-Hadad's servants said to him, Behold, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Isn't that great? God's reputation as a merciful God even extends to his enemies. So let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the kings of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. And so they go out to King Ahab. They beg for their life. And in contrast to how the story began, Ben-Hadad now revises his offer to King Ahab. Verse 34. And Ben-Hadad said to him, said to Ahab, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, Drum roll, the moment of truth, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. And in a twist of irony here, far from responding to God's mercy with humility and repentance, Ahab's gone ten steps in the wrong direction. By the end of the story, he's become less like God and more like Ben-Hadad. But that's not the most troubling part of the story here. It's not just that Ahab uses Ben-Hadad for his own political advantage. But in doing so, he disobeyed the clear command and expectation of God. See, this wasn't just another battle for God. This was a holy war, much like when Israel first entered into the promised land. And God wasn't just defeating, it wasn't just defending Israel. He was going to battle against the forces of evil in this world. And the expectation of God is clear. Everything must be destroyed. Every trace of this evil oppressor must be wiped off the face of the earth never to return, never to threaten God's good world once again. Only Ahab didn't destroy everything. He saw in Ben-Hadad a political advantage, and so he let him go. After all, what good is a dead ally who's deeply indebted and will do anything for you? (laughs) And so in spite of experiencing God's mercy, Ahab once again rejected him, pushed him away. See, while we can't exhaust God's mercy, we can reject it. We can refuse him. We can continue to harden our hearts and push him away. And that's exactly what Ahab does here. See, there was still one more theology lesson that Ahab had to learn. Not only is God sovereign, and not only is he merciful, but he's also a God who is judge. And God's going to teach this lesson once again through this unnamed prophet. It's a really bizarre story that happens at the very end of this text. The prophet walks up to one of the Israelite mercenaries and asks him, uh, very politely I might add, uh, to punch him in the face. (laughs) 
And the, the mercenary refuses. I mean, he's kind of a classy guy, right? I mean, that's the right move to make. He doesn't punch him in the face. And the prophet calls down a curse on this man. And as soon as he walks away, a lion comes along and tears him to shreds. Okay, <laughs> kind of strange. I mean, moral of the story here, if your pastor asks you to punch him in the face, then just do it, right? Don't ask any questions. Um, no, that's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story here is that we disobey the clear command of God at our own peril, even when it doesn't make sense. You see? And so the prophet approaches another mercenary, and he complies. <laughs> he graciously punches him in the face, and the prophet then puts on a disguise and goes to King Ahab and gives an Oscar-worthy performance. He says, King Ahab, I was charged with watching a political prisoner who is under a death sentence. And I was told if I let this prisoner go, I would die in his place. But that scoundrel, <laughs> he punched me in the face and he ran away. And now, King Ahab, I don't know what to do. What should happen here? You see the trap that he's setting. And so Ahab says very quickly, without much thought, his life for your life, right? I mean, the, the terms were clear. You should die. You, you, let a, you let a death sentence inmate go. You should take his place. And in this moment, the trap is sprung. The prophet throws off his disguise, reveals his true identity, and he says in verse 42, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, Therefore, your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. It's a sobering moment in the story. Ahab is given a death sentence here. A prophetic prediction that will in fact come true just two chapters later in this story. Now, Let's talk about this for a few minutes because all this death and destruction, right? This is a little bit hard to swallow. I mean, I said earlier that the real offense of this story and in fact of the Bible is God's mercy, not his judgment. And I really believe that. If we really understood the depth of our own depravity, we would understand how ridiculous God's mercy is. But let's be honest. This is hard to swallow. It's hard to read about the destruction of this city and, and, and the killing of Ben-Hadad and the judgment placed on King Ahab. What are we to make of this? Because the truth is we'd much rather have the mercy of God than the judgment of God. But we have to understand that God's mercy and his judgment are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. See, mercy without judgment is really just ignoring the problem. You're not doing justice to the depth of the depravity in this world and in ourselves. But judgment without mercy is just this angry God who just fumes at everything in this world, whether deserving or not. No, we need both mercy and justice for God to be good. One without the other cannot function. In order for God to be merciful, he must deal with the evil and sin and brokenness in this world. He must be willing to see it for what it is and leverage every power at his disposal to fix it. 
God cannot deliver his people without at the same time dealing with the evil that oppresses them. It can't happen. And the truth is, we long for this kind of judgment, don't we? We long for God to step in and fix the brokenness that we see in this world. We long for him to make it right. See, the news that God is a God of judge is not bad news, it's good news. It's the only way we can fix what's wrong with this world. Greg Gilbert once wrote that no one wants a God who declines to deal with evil. We just want a God who declines to deal with our evil. (laughs) We all want a God who will fix what's wrong with this world. We just don't want him to mess with us. And that's the real rub in the text, isn't it? Because the evil that God has to deal with in order to make this right isn't just the evil in Syria. It's the evil in Israel. It's the evil in Ahab. And it must be dealt with for God's people to be free. See, as as the king, Ahab was supposed to be the vehicle of God's judgment. He was supposed to be the protector and defender of God's people. And here in this story, God is working to prevent this evil Syrian oppressor from causing more and more harm and damage and destruction in God's good world. But Ahab has failed to deliver God's justice. He's once again rejected God and his ways. And we're meant to read the end of the story and feel a profound sense of of sadness and disappointment and longing. I mean, where is the king who will carry out God's judgment? Where is the king who will deliver us from evil, both the evil and the Syrians without and the Ahabs within. Where is the king who will set us free from judgment through judgment? See, this battle story isn't just an end in itself. It points us somewhere. It points us to another battle when our true king would wage war against all of the sin and evil and brokenness in this world. In the person of Jesus, the sovereign God himself took on human flesh and walked among us. His whole life was a public declaration of the scandalous, inexhaustible mercy of God. And it was on the cross where the real battle for our hearts was waged and won. Our true king was not only the vehicle of God's judgment, he was its vessel. He absorbed the fatal blow. He stood in our place. He delivered us from judgment through judgment. See, it's at the cross where mercy and judgment meet. And it is our only hope. The story of King Ahab ends in despair. And it could have ended in despair for us. We deserve the same fate. But our story doesn't end here. Now, God sent us a king far better than Ahab. Jesus is our king who judges justly and delivers us from evil. 
He's a king who extends his inexhaustible mercy at every turn in our story, no matter how far we've gone, no matter how much we've resisted him. And he's a king who invites us to trust in his sovereign care and control in every aspect of our lives. He will care for us. He will fight for us. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are a God who fights for us. That we are not left alone in our sin and our evil and our despair. That we, unlike Ahab, are not without hope. But that you have come. That in your sovereign power, you have waged war against the sin and evil in this world and in our hearts. And so, God, we are grateful. We're grateful for who you are and for all that you've done for us, so richly undeserved and yet so generously poured out. And so help us this week, God. Help us to yield to your sovereign care and control. Help us to remember and cling to your mercy. And Father, when we feel the judgment of the evil one, May we rest confident of the fact that our judgment has been paid, that you stood in our place, and because of that we have hope. We thank you, Lord God, and pray this in the name of Jesus, our great deliverer. Amen.